Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tuesday timeout right here on NGSCSports.com. I am your host, Jim Neese. It is a pleasant Tuesday evening to you. Glad to be back on the air. And uh, it seems like everything's functioning perfectly and as it should be tonight after the technical difficulties of a week ago. Just to remind you about NGSCSports.com, where we never stop. Check out this site. Plenty of content there to check out. Not only this player, Channel 2. There's shows on Channel One, plenty of podcasts. Check it all out, folks. Let us know how we're doing. You can also subscribe to our shows on Spreaker by going uh, and searching NGSC, and also uh, iHeartRadio by searching NGSC. Uh, you can find this uh, set of shows, the Channel Two shows, on iTunes by searching NGSC Sports Radio and the number two on iTunes, or also the uh, Channel One stuff on iTunes by just searching NGSC Sports Radio. Uh, plenty of stuff to get to tonight. Obviously going to talk about NFL, going to talk some Pro Bowl, going to talk college football, uh, or, um, we're going to talk uh, NHL All-Star Weekend and much, much more. So if you have anything you want to get off your mind uh, and, and sound off on, feel free to call in and you can do that by calling 724-444-7444. Again, 724 724- Four 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 seven four four four. You're going to have to enter the ID number one three six one one seven, and just follow the prompt from there, and that'll get you uh, onto the show with me. You can tweet me during the show. Uh, I do answer tweets on the air if you have questions and you don't really feel like uh, feel like calling in. You can tweet me at Big Jim Sports or hit us up on our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash Big Jim Sports. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we had a, a, a co-host in. Um, been under the weather the last couple of weeks. Finally, have turned the corner on that. Uh, we're going to welcome Anthony back into the show. Anthony, uh, I think it's the first time you've joined us in the new year. It's hard for me to remember. I, it's you know, it's the first. It's the first time I've joined in the new year. Um, I think I was, the first week I was on, 
my little winter break from school, I joined you, and um, I haven't been on air of any sort since, so I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. So, well, you know, first off, Happy New Year, almost at the end of the month, but we'll get that out of the way. But uh, gonna gonna talk the. NFL playoffs, the championship weekend first, and we'll go in order as the games um, went in order. So we'll start with the NFC championship. Uh, obviously, I think it's pretty safe to say, Anthony, these, this was the better of the two games from this past weekend. Uh, just a bit. Um, you know, a little bit more <laughs> drama. Well, you know what? I don't know if there's a little bit more drama from this one. Or do we get some more drama out of the <laughs> AFC championship game? Um, off the field, we sure as heck did. But, uh, yeah, it was you know, that second half was phenomenal. And after the first half, Seattle was dead. Green Bay had everything written in stone. They're going to the Super Bowl. And I said, this is a position I want to see Russell Wilson in. Can he muster a comeback himself by having to make plays? And you know what? Seattle still ran the football. A lot of their offense ran around, uh, revolved around running the football. And they were successful doing it and were able to generate a comeback. Now, Going into the second half, I didn't expect Green Bay's offense to uh, only put up three points, and those three points to come with 19 seconds to go on the clock. But, you know, credit Seattle. That's a team comeback from Seattle. There was not one player that did it uh, for them. It was a completely joint effort, and you have to give them credit where credit is due, all three sides of the ball, offense, defense, special teams. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this looked like a game from the word go that um, couldn't have gone worse for the Seattle Seahawks. Um, Eight minutes in, uh, Green Bay gets on the board with a field goal. Uh, Just a couple minutes later, they got on the board with another field goal, both inside of 20 yards, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And they closed out the first quarter with a Randall Cobb 13-yard touchdown pass uh, from Aaron Rodgers. So they're up 13-0 at the half. They added a a 40-yard Mason Crosby field goal. They went into halftime up 16-0, and this game very easily... Uh, it could have been a lot, lot worse than that. I mean, you, you got to think that uh, they, the, the Packers left, uh, what is that, another eight, at least another eight points on the board by not getting those touchdowns. I know a lot of people, um, let's, you know, let's talk about that. A lot of people looked at those two field goals, and, and there was, you know, close plays down by the goal line where, where the fans were saying, look, you have to, you have to go for that. On fourth down, uh, Mike McCarthy elected to uh, kick kick the field goals. I actually agreed with McCarthy at the time because, uh, you know, Seattle was on their heels. They they hadn't gotten a playoff across the fifty yard line. You know, through the first uh, what through the first what ten minutes of the game, you know, the Green Bay's defense was in Russell Wilson's face. Marshawn Lynch couldn't get anywhere. Uh, you know, and I felt that if you if you go for it on fourth and one, or, you know, fourth and goal at the one yard line, if you go for it for fourth and goal at the two yard line, and you don't get in, I feel like that gives the momentum to Seattle because that pumps up the defense, that pumps up the crowd, and in turn is probably going to get the offense cooking. So I actually agreed with McCarthy. I know I was I was probably in the minority there to agree with him to say, look, just get points on the board. Uh, you know, I, I think. Green Bay, at least in the first half, was kind of following the Dallas Cowboys blueprint from earlier this year on how to beat uh, on how to beat the the Seattle Seahawks at home, and they were doing a tremendous job of it. Of course, going into 
the uh, going into the half up 16 nothing. Anthony, what did you think about the, those two decisions on those two drives to not uh, go for it on, on fourth and short at the goal line? I would have liked to see the Packers go for it when they were on the one-yard line, uh, just simply because you kind of I, – I, I would have liked to see them come out loose, you know, show that you're not afraid. Because I think Seattle expects you to be afraid of their defensive front. The fans expect you to be afraid. You're on their turf. And guess what? If you score, you shut them right up. And I think it shows the ultimate uh, confidence in your defensive line, too, that if you have Seattle stuck on the one-yard line, let, let them try and beat you from there. Let them try and do it. But I would have liked to see McCarthy go for it. I mean, can you go wrong with the point? No, you can't. And I'm not going to sit here and play – the hindsight 2020 and say they should have went for it just because of the outcome of the game and say those four extra points they could have had from a touchdown and extra point sure would have helped. That's stupid of me to say that. But at the time, I thought they should have went for it there. The second time they kicked the field goal, I was completely cool with that. But from the one-yard line, when you have two options in John Kuhn and Eddie Lacy who could both punch it in, I mean, that's a good dual threat right there. And obviously, Rodgers was not 100% or else we could have seen him come out of the shotgun. He could have rolled out, uh, found Kuhn or Lacey, found a tight end. But that wasn't the case. So maybe maybe Rodgers' health and not being so mobile had, had a factor uh, in it, and maybe he couldn't get to the running back at the time that Seattle had a jailbreak there, that Rodgers couldn't scramble. It was a little bit hazardous. The fumble caused some issues. So, I mean, maybe there's more that went into it that as fans just watching the game, we can't see. But Sitting in that perspective, I would have liked to see McCarthy go for it, show some stones, and try to stick it to that Seattle fan base. Um, Because at that point in the game, they were still loud and into it. That was before Green Bay had their lead. So I I thought he could have tried to take them out of the game in the first quarter. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the stat line, I mean, Eddie Eddie Lacy was, you know, he averaged, I mean, it was obviously over the course of the game, three and a half yards to carry. James Starks actually averaged – you know, 8.8 yards of carry. Now his was in very limited work. Um, so you got, you know, you got to think that they could at least punch it in. Yeah, but I, I'm like you. I'm not going to sit here and say that the the reason the Packers lost is because they didn't, you know, punch these two in for touchdown. Uh, because you know what happened in the second half um, was was you know a complete you know change of game on both sides of the ball. You know, Seattle I think adjusted. Green Bay, I think, went into cruise control a little bit. Uh, looking at the second half, uh, Gary Gillum uh, caught a 19-yard touchdown pass from John Ryan. Of course, the uh, fake uh, field goal, which uh, took took absolute. You know, you talked about uh, you would like to see Mike McCarthy have some stones and uh, and go for it on one of those fourth and shorts. You want to talk about having stones? You're you know, this is four minutes to go in the third quarter. You're down 16 to nothing. You're lined up for a field goal, your first points of the day, and, and you pull off, you know, you pull off the fake of all fakes, and uh, and and it works to perfection. Uh, and and I think, you know, really, I know Green Bay was not playing up, you know, playing at their best through the first, uh, you know, ten minutes or so of this quarter, but this is where I thought the game completely went 180, uh, and 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 it just started to get out of control for Green Bay, and they they really never got it back. Mason Crosby had a uh, 48-yard field goal with about five minutes into the fourth quarter, and then Seattle took over from there. Russell Wilson, a one-yard touchdown run with two minutes to go. Marshawn Lynch, a 24-yard touchdown run with a minute to go. 
Mason Crosby, you know, that put them up 22 to 19. Mason Crosby had a 48-yard field goal to tie the game uh, with 14 seconds left. And, of course, the Jermaine Curse 35-yard touchdown pass from Russell Wilson. I believe it was it was only about two minutes after uh, the one of the announcers said about how, um, you know, when Denver went into uh, Seattle and, you know, when they, you know they, they tied the game and never had a chance to touch the ball. And right after that, you know, Seattle ended it 28-22 uh, to 22 is the final. You know, a lot of things went into this, uh, went into this second half. Um, first off for Green Bay, you had, a, you had a play where, you know, let's look at kind of individual things, and then we'll kind of look at this whole game. But you, you had a situation where Richard Sherman got injured. I mean, to the point where he, he, he couldn't, he was just holding his left arm against his body. Really wasn't moving his left arm. I don't believe that the Packers threw once his direction from that point on. Did, did that baffle you as much as it baffled me? I mean, I understand he is arguably the most dominant and best uh, you know, defensive back in the NFL. However, when you have a defensive back that only has one arm, you would think that regardless of his talent level, you would be able to exploit it somewhat with the weapons that you have on that offense. Did it surprise you that Green Bay didn't attack what was surely a weakness in that secondary? Yeah, I thought it uh, was completely surprising that, I mean, as good as Richard Sherman is, listen, he saw that injury, and you know Green Bay had to see that uh, in a replay of some sort, or someone buzzed down and said, listen, what happened to his arm? It got pinched, and that was a nasty little bump, and obviously it seems that Richard Sherman is okay. It's nothing major, but to work through that in a game, that is hard. He took a hard shot there on his arm that um, it's going to be tough to shake off. I would have t- You got a big receiver in Jordy Nelson. Listen, you need someone to go up and get a football, you can throw it up. Richard Sherman with one arm, the chances of him intercepting it, not too likely. Could he swat it away? Possibly but that's the worst thing that happens. I say go for it and attack them. And you're in a position there, too, where they, not only Richard Sherman is vulnerable, but the team is, too. You could put them away with a dagger there in the second half by putting up a big touchdown. And Green Bay, I think they were in a mode that they played not to win the game, but they played not to lose it. They played not to lose that football game. And you talked about the fake field goal that Seattle had. That's a sign of playing, listen, our backs are against the wall. Let's play to win this thing. Let's not play to hang around, try to tie it up, although that's what happens. Let's play to win it. And we saw that in overtime, too, with that play, Colin. We saw Russell Wilson had a good pass down the sidelines on a long ball. Well, guess what? First and 10, they went long right away, and I give all the credit to coaching right there, and the players executed perfectly. That was phenomenal play calling from Seattle that second half to put themselves in a position to win that football game. I think there's no other way around saying that um, Pete Carroll proved his worth to that. As great as that team is, he's a great head coach. And I've uh, just looking at him on the sideline, you know, I've had some issues with how Pete Carroll has acted and going back from the USC days, but man, I have nothing but respect for what he did there uh, in that NFC championship game and definitely solidified that Seattle is a legit team. And if they win a Super Bowl here, go back to back. I think you could put the Seattle Seahawks team in discussion as one of the best of all time. 
Will it be biased to saying the 72 Dolphins are going undefeated? Yes, I think they're the best team of all time. They were not beaten. But this Seattle team, they've shown me two things, that they can win football games and dominate, and they've also shown me heart and resiliency. We saw that when they went through a rough patch in the regular season, and they showed heart and resiliency in that football game against the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, it's definitely been an impressive run for them. Um, you know, this year I kind of got into a, into an argument with a guy on on, on Twitter on Sunday um, because the comeback in itself impressed me, but really as a whole, uh, the, the Seattle team has not overly impressed me this year. Obviously, if they if they can get if they can beat New England, um, you know, I'm I'm definitely gonna have to change my tune. But you know you're a seven point favorite at home. You have to you have to come from behind. Obviously the Packers, you know their mindset was completely wrong. You look at a play where where Morgan Burnett intercepts a pass about five minutes to go. And instead of running and, and putting your team into great scoring position um, to probably seal the game to make it you know anywhere between twenty two to seven or twenty six to seven um, with about five minutes left. Not only does he go down, but I believe Julius Peppers was telling him to get down. Now, I understand yeah, you he, don't want to. he told to, him to get down. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to uh, fumble the ball, but it's not like it's a defensive lineman here. I mean, you're talking about a guy that, that has a pretty good set of hands and, and, and probably would have been able to get into scoring position, had a lane. So I, I question the mindset of Green Bay, and I'm not trying to discredit Seattle because everybody knows you know, how I personally feel about Seattle. But, you know, I, I feel like you, you look at the second half of their schedule when they turned it on, and I know they got healthy, but I didn't feel like there was a lot of impressive wins there. You, not, you, you beat a Carolina team last week in a not-so-convincing fashion, and then, you, you know, you have a terrible game, but you find a way to win. Again, the comeback impressive. You know, I, I really want to see Seattle versus New England. I'm really looking forward to the Super Bowl. We're not going to break that down today. But, yeah, definitely impressive. When you score, you know, all, all of those points, 14 points or um, 21 points, basically in like a five-minute uh, football time span, that, that's, that's impressive. I don't care who you are. I don't care your feeling about any particular team. What, what Seattle did to be able to win this game regardless of how they played earlier in the game and regardless of, you know, how uh, Green Bay kind of went in the shell, Seattle still has to pull it off. And, and, and they did that, and, you know, that impressed me. What I do love about this is the, the images of all of those fans that, you know, with, with a few minutes to go, figured, I can get out to my car, I can, you know, I can get to the, you know, mass transit, whatever, get home early, this game's over. And then the sea of fans standing underneath a no reentry sign trying to get back in because their team – is uh, you know is is on the comeback train. It, it just made me laugh. I've always been a person, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I've always been a person that, especially in a, uh, especially in a playoff game, but in any game, unless there's some sort of an emergency or you know you have kids and it's getting late, something like that. But if you're just you know if you're an adult sports fan, you paid the ticket, you're in there, stay till the end of the game. I've always felt that. Stay to the end of the game. Because really, leaving early is not really going to get you out that much quicker. It's not going to get you you know, onto a train that much quicker or anything like that. 
just stay till the end of the game. So these people are bailing out on their team in a playoff game, not going to send their team off with pride and, 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 you know, you know, and, and salute them, you know, for the season that they had coming off of a Super Bowl win and going 12 and four in a regular season. No, they, they got to get home. They got to get home. And then they're trying to get back in it. That cracked me up as much as anything this past Sunday. Yeah, it cracks me up too. And the Miami Heat fans did it a couple of years. We've seen it at all sporting events. But here's my thing: you bought tickets to the game. You're expecting to stay for all four quarters. Where else could you possibly have to go? Unless there's an emergency. But I'll tell you what: not that many people had an emergency. I mean, where else do you have to go? Beating traffic? That's a lame excuse because guess what? If everybody else is leaving at that time, you're going to be stuck in traffic with them. There's going to be traffic regardless. So that right there is a lame excuse. And you're essentially planning your entire day around being at that football game. I, I, I don't get it. Like, where else do you have to go? You have nowhere to be unless there's an emergency of some sort. And the odds of that, not too likely. And those people were not standing at the bar watching the Seahawks come back. They were off to their emergency. Wherever. Yeah, I agree. You paid for the ticket. Stay for the end of the game. So what they're losing? That's part of sports. You've got to deal with it as a fan. Win with grace, lose with grace. As much as losing sucks, got to learn to accept it. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually gotten into uh, verbal altercations with people because uh, as, as they make me get up so they can leave early, I said, uh, don't waste your, you know, I'll say things like, don't waste your money next time, um, you know, or, you know, you know, save the gas, things like that. And uh, a couple of people react to it uh, in, in not so favorable ways, but I don't really care. Um, Anthony, th- this is a question. I, I think it was, uh, it was posed on uh, Steve Zabin's show uh, yesterday. Uh, one of the shows I was listening to, did the Packers lose this game? Or did Seattle win this game? Give your thoughts, then I'll give mine. Did Packers lose or did Seattle win? A combination of both. I feel like saying the Packers lost takes away from what Seattle did because factors, I mean, Seattle played their butts off that second half. But Green Bay didn't really do themselves any favors. They did not. And in one instance, uh, late in that game, they had a good drive going. It was after, I think, when James Starks broke off his longest run. It was second and seven. And Green Bay had, a, I think it was early in the fourth quarter. They were chewing clock. Had a great drive going. It went from the third quarter into the fourth quarter. Second and seven, they passed the football. Incomplete pass. Third down, they're in a spot where they need to pass the football. I don't get on second and seven after you've been tearing Seattle apart with your run game there with Starks and with Lacey who could pound it up the middle. Why not just go to them and kill clock? Just, you know, they kind of, Mike McCarthy did not coach a good game. He did not. So Green Bay did not execute in spots where they necessarily needed to. Uh, although ahead at the half, Aaron Rodgers did not have a phenomenal game. There's, there's many ways to look at it. There are a ton of ways. So I think it's a combination of both. Um, you saw flashes of brilliance from both sides. I think Seattle 100% outplayed Green Bay in that second half. So if we're going to lean any sort of way, I'd say Seattle won the game. Um, and it was just, a, I mean, again, a combination of what happened. Look at the, We haven't even talked about the onside kick yet. Uh, give credit there. Heck of a kick. 
You put the ball in play, gave yourself a chance, and Bostic botched it. Simple as that. Seattle recovered and stepped up there, but did Bostic lose that play? You could put all the blame on him, and I think in that, in that spot you kind of have to. Uh, but I'll say Seattle more so won that game than Green Bay lost it. I'll give Seattle credit there. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it is definitely a, a combination of both. I don't think you can you can pinpoint it on one team uh, one way or the other. Um, I you know I, I think at least early on in these in the in the second half, I, I think that Green Bay lost the game. But when when you look at the you know those last couple minutes, you know when Green Bay got that got that turnover. And and they they didn't try and score, you know. And you left that little bit of a window open. Then Seattle pounced on it. So yeah, it's definitely a combination of the two. And yeah, the onside kick. That, that's that's uh, one about the last thing specifically of the game uh, that I want to look at. You know, the onside kick. It hits it hits Bostic in the face. Of course, fans um, unfortunately reacting in in a not so um, not so friendly way to Bostic after. After the situation, you know the whole death threat thing, which is just, just just disgusting. But you look at the play, and yeah, you know, should he have let the ball go to um, Jordy Nelson behind him? Absolutely. But you know, how many times in an athletic situation, you know, do you get amped up? Do you make mistakes? You know, when you're in that tight of a situation, does your body kind of tense up? You know, guys make mistakes. He's a young guy. Uh, just an unfortunate situation. Um, you know, but what it comes down to, and, you know, I've talked about it, you know, last week with the, with the Des Bryant catch, no catch situation two weeks ago with the pass interference, no pass interference in the Dallas Detroit game. These games don't come down to one play. I I don't care what anybody, you know, tries to say, or they try and argue a point or, you know, they try and place blame on somebody. These games, you know, it's a whole game situation, you know, it's something that, you know, it's not something that these guys can sit there and say, yes, what happened with Bostic? What ha- you know, he blew the play. He screwed up. He didn't field the ball correctly. He shouldn't have fielded the ball. Yes, that that's true. All of those things are correct, but he didn't lose the game. You know, the Packers gave up. You know, the Packers gave up, like we said, 21 points in a five-minute span of, uh, of football time from the end of the half, end of the fourth quarter to the uh, end of the overtime. So the Packers' defense failed the Packers. Uh, you know, the, the Packers didn't do enough to score enough points there at the, you know, in the second half. You know, the, the, the whole game is the reason that the, that the Packers lost this game. It doesn't come down to one play. I, I don't like to place blame on one person. And I think it's, it's really a shame that he's being blamed as hard as he is for this one situation. I, I think it's a bummer, too. Um, now, that's the play that sticks out. You know, I, I think it's because it's the play. It's unique to us. Uh, how many times do we see a guy watch an onside kick in a big situation where it's questioned of how should he have judged it? Should he have blocked, which many players did say, or 
should he have tried to play the ball? And from what I've heard is that his assignment is to block. But when that kick first started, as someone on the front line, you're supposed to judge if that ball is coming directly at you, you attempt to field it. The way that kick started, that ball was coming directly at him. It took that high hop that all kickers like. And I think Bostic was kind of caught in between. Now, I think he should be a good enough athlete. He should have his hands on it. He should be down. He should be on top of it. But, you know what, I think he it was in between there. It, it, I give credit to the kicker. Uh, I give Hauschka credit on the kick. That is a phenomenal onside kick. You always want kicks to go boom, boom, and then take that high hop. And that's what you got from him. Um, so give credit to Seattle there. Green Bay did not execute. And I think that was the story of the second half. That play kind of sums it up. I don't want to trash Bostic. I don't know what his future is in the NFL on the hands team. As a tight end, Green Bay set with that situation. Um, you know, I hope it doesn't derail his career. hope he can kind of come back confidence-wise because mentally that can weigh on someone. We don't know what kind of person Bostic is. Uh, if he's weak or strong, if he's going to learn from the situation. But, yeah, I think, you know, giving him all the grief in this situation, please, please, that is a little bit too much on my end. There's enough blame to go around on that Green Bay Packers team. That was a team loss. It's not on one individual player. Like a team win that was for Seattle, that's a team loss for Green Bay. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, it, it, But, yeah, it is going to be intriguing, and it's going to be something to watch you know, as you get into next year, how does he respond to this? How does does this affect him uh, going forward in his career? I, I I hope it doesn't. You know, it was it was one play. It wasn't. You know, it's 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 not an easy position to be in. I would imagine. I've never you know I've never played football. I've never you know I've never been in that spot. You know, on an onside kick. So I don't know exactly. But uh, you know, not only is it you know is it a challenging situation. Uh, uh, just in general, but when you have all this added, all this extra stuff added on top of it, it's the NFC Championship. You know your team's losing. You know your quarterback's banged up. You know you kind of feel the whole thing slipping away. There's a lot going into that moment, and um, you know you're on the road in a very hostile environment. So there's a lot that's going into it, and I and I do I really I really do uh, feel bad uh, for the young man. But uh, you know give credit to Seattle, 28-22, they get the win. They're on to their second straight Super Bowl coming off the win a year ago. Um, and then, of course, we, you know, you went into the uh, AFC Championship game, which was a game that, um, you know, had a lot to live up, a lot to live up to, especially given the way that the uh, NFC Championship ended. Um, not as exciting, at least uh, from a viewing standpoint, not much drama from a viewing standpoint. Uh, we'll, we'll get into uh Ballgate, I guess, is what they're what they're calling it now. Um, you know, if you have any thoughts on the NFC Championship, AFC Championship, you know, get in on the line. Uh, you know, we'll get to you seven two four 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 seven four four four. The ID number is one three six one one seven, and it'll get you right in here. But uh, Anthony, you know, this this is a game. I thought uh, last week on the show, I took Seattle with the points, uh, which was about seven seven and a half, and I took. New England with the points, which is again it's about seven, seven and a half. So Seattle just fell under that line. Um, you know, I, I, when I said I, I took New England with the points, I assumed that it was going to be, you know, ten, fourteen, maybe seventeen. I, I didn't see this one going the way it did. 
kind of sloppy weather up in uh, up in New England. But uh, you know, it, it was it was the Patriots. It was the Patriots show all day. And to think, you know, we go back to October. You know, when the uh, New York Post and and sports writers and sports hosts and everybody were questioning whether or not um, the that uh, whether or not Brady should retire, whether or not um, you know the the dynasty was over. Um, there was so much talk about how bad the Patriots were, and and to think of the the road that they've gone on since then, um, you know, it has been a pretty impressive run in itself. Fourteen uh, nothing at the end of the first. You had a you had a Laguerre blunt rushing touchdown, a James Devlin touchdown reception. Uh, Zerlon tipped in, got the only points of the day for Indianapolis. About four fifty four left in the uh, in the first half. Steven Guskowski had a twenty one yard field goal to end the first half. So at that point, it's seventeen to seven, and kind of much like the NFC Championship game. We'll stop there, and then we'll look at the se- the second half. But I kind of felt at, at halftime like New England was at that point kind of flirting with disaster a little bit. I felt like there was there was some instances in the first half where they could have kind of put their you know their foot on the the Colts' throat and really stepped down and, and take take control of them. They just didn't do it. I didn't know if it was you know if they were just kind of anxious in the moment or they were kind of trying to get a feel for the game. I don't know what it was, but. I, I felt like there was there was just something that they weren't they didn't have that killer instinct um, in that first half, but um, you know they were up seventeen to seven and and you, and you kind of had to feel like they were in control, but not as as much as the score seemed to show. What did you think about the first half? Um, ooh, well, Indy showed life late, and I thought that there was some hope. I said. Make this game manageable. Um, I think he can rally the troops at half. And, I mean, going into this game, you knew Indy's chances were slim. As much as I wanted them to win, as much as I like Andrew Andrew Luck, I knew it was going to be tough. Going into New England, um, and with the weather being a factor, just things did not add up for Indianapolis. But, hey, sometimes you get some great underdog stories, and maybe this is a this is a team Andrew Luck could lead, and it just it it, it wasn't there. You know they led the league in drop passes going into this game. They dropped some key passes all throughout that game, but the, moreover, at the end of the first half, I thought Indy still had a shot, somewhat of a shot, long shot, but it was there, and that's because I believe in their quarterback so much. Uh, but the way New England ran the football, it, it did not give you hope for Indianapolis whatsoever at all. And they came into this playoffs with a bad run defense, um, kind of stood tall against Cincinnati, and Denver did Indy, but, you know, too powerful was Garrett Blunt for the Indianapolis Colts. So I gave them a slim chance of hope at the end of the first half. Um, but that's about it. And then, you know, the Patriots kind of showed up in the second half and put the nail in the coffin. Ah uh, yes, they sure did. Uh, three uh, scoring drives, all touchdown drives in the uh, in the third quarter. Nate Solder catches a 16-yard pass from uh, from Brady at uh, about five minutes in, and then two in the last couple of minutes. Uh, Gronkowski catches a five-yarder. Blunt gets a 13-yard touchdown run. 
Um, and then uh, Blunt uh, adds his third of the day, a uh, two-yard touchdown run with about 10 minutes uh, to go. 45-7. to seven. Again, this one not even close. Um, you know, I think Andrew Luck will get there. I think, you know, a lot of people uh, are kind of wanting to label him, um, you know, a, as a guy that can't get the job done. But, uh, you know, much like I think Romo was in the past in Dallas, you know, he, he hasn't had the best setup, um, especially with the defense that he's had, especially this year. 12-33 Luck was 126, two interceptions. Again, uh, pretty sloppy conditions up there. Um, or at least, you know, wet, uh, turf fields don't exactly get sloppy, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I think over time, you know, people forget that, that Peyton Manning lost his first, I think it was, uh, six or seven, uh, playoff games. So, um, I, I think Andrew Luck and this team are going to get there. There's, there's definitely some youth here that, uh, that they can build on. Definitely need to look at their defense, uh, in the off season, but Tom Brady, um, very good, 23 of 35, 226, three touchdowns. Uh, he did have an interception. Uh, Blunt was the star of the day, 30 carries, 148 yards, three touchdowns. Um, you know, it, it's funny how um, the, the earlier in the year when they played Indianapolis, it was the Jonas Gray show, who's a guy that I don't even believe is oh – no, I guess he is. he did dress for the game. He had four carries for four yards. But, uh, you know, this is kind of what New England does. Uh, they, they they find different ways to beat even the same teams, and and they did it once again. Legarrette Blunt, um, you know, you know, definitely was the star of the day. Edelman had 98 yards uh, receiving on nine catches, so so an absolutely dominant performance uh, by New England. But um, of course, in the aftermath now, over the last couple of days, uh, uh, the the whole uh, Ballgate situation ha- has come up where. Um, I guess it was during the, I want to say like third quarter, there was a, a situation where I guess a one ball was called into question. Uh, it was removed and checked. Um, so the NFL is launching an, launched an investigation whether the Patriots violated the rules regarding the inflation of footballs. They have to be uh, inflated, I think it's with 12 and a half uh, to 13 and a half uh, pounds per square inch and, and have a certain weight to it. Um, but here's my question, and this is kind of you know what what I've been throwing out there for the last couple of days is this: um, the the teams turn in the footballs. Uh, I think it's two and a half hours before the game, and then they are handled by the officials and the uh, the ball attendants or attendees or whatever. Uh, I don't know what their official title is, um, ball boys, for lack of a better word. Um, you know that that's who handles the the footballs after they are turned in by the teams. The the home team supplies X number, road team supplies X number, and in bad weather situations, the home team supplies you know some extra footballs. Once the once the Patriots turn them in, you know is it is it not the the officials' duty to check the footballs, um, and and then it is you know it's their duty. It's their job to make sure that they're okay. And, and once they're in the game, because this was a situation, like I said, in the third quarter, you know, who has the balls on the sidelines? Are they not kept by the officials or, or, you know, somebody with the ball boys, things like that? Why 
if there is a situation of deflation going on, which I don't think there is, if there's a situation with deflation going on, doesn't this fall on the officials and or the ball attendants as opposed to the Patriots themselves because they they would have turned the balls into the league and to the officials? Uh, it's interesting. I think there's so many ways to look at it, and it's obviously not settled at this point. Now, here's one thing I heard. I heard that in the second quarter on the Dequell Jackson interception, he caught the ball, gave it to their equipment manager or their sideline ball boy. I think it was their equipment manager because he intercepted the football. He gave it to him and said, I want to keep this intercepted conference game uh, pass. That equipment manager felt that the football was a little iffy, um, didn't feel normal. They made note of it to Chuck Pagano, and by halftime they already called up to the GM, and he had contacted the league office. So that's the story I got uh, from this whole situation. Now, in regards to, yeah, players can bring their own balls, the referees check them, but after that point, what happens? You know, you talked about the ball boy there. I mean, how credible are they? They're obviously not getting paid a whole amount. I'm not going to say money was uh, transferred here, but are these situations possible? I think so. I mean, I, I for one, believe that there was a deflate gate here. Uh, I believe in it. Did it have an impact on the game? No, it did not. That is one thing for certain. But here's my issue. Of all the teams in the National Football League that get hit with cheating speculations, why does it always seem to be the New England Patriots? You have 31 other teams with a clean record. Why is it the New England Patriots? And if the Patriots feel the need that deflating footballs will help them win a, a football game, it's pretty sad in my opinion because the Patriots are a darn good football team and they know, they have to know, or maybe they don't, that they are good enough to beat any single team in this league. Deflating footballs or not. You know, if this is what gives them, gives them their confidence that they think it's going to give them an edge, it's sad. But I just come to the question, why is it always the Patriots being accused of something? Why not another team? That's where, well, I, draw I, mean, the, that's where I draw the question. I mean, to be fair, though, you know, there's been teams, I mean, you look at Seattle, had had some guys, you know, that were popped for Adderall. There's been guys that have been hit, uh, you know, with we've seen guys suspensions. Pop, I mean, yeah, we've seen guys with PEDs all over the league. That's a difference. But in in-game, with Spygate and deflating football, and we go back to the 90s. Now, this is before Robert Kraft, before Bill Belichick, but my Dolphins got hosed by the Patriots when it was a snowy football game, and they brought a plow out onto the field to plow the uh, – to, to give the kicker a clean spot. And that's illegal. You can't do that. But the Patriots seem to get away with these types of things. And, and if they lose draft picks, if that's the only punishment for this, so be it. You know, they're going to say, what's the pros here? What's the con? Pro, we have a ton of confidence. We beat this Colts team. And listen, if they feel that they needed to play footballs to beat this Colts team, I mean, not just to win a football game, but this Colts team, look at them. Outside of Vontae Davis on that defense, you have a few defensive linemen there, uh, Arthur Jones, Ricky Jean, Francois, and uh, Corey Redding. You have four guys on defense and possibly seven other guys running around there that are possibly dead weight on that defense. 
if New England felt the need that they need to gain an edge on offense by deflating the football, I just I don't see how a team just says, well, I thought they were deflating the football. I mean, you just don't come up with that. You just do not because it's not a common occurrence in the NFL. And cheating speculations, baseball, you see people steal sides. That's part of the game. You can see people steal hand signals in football a little bit, but videotaping is different. And deflating a football, I mean, come on. I, I don't know how the – I mean, the Patriots feel like they're held to this higher standard, too, that they can get away with anything. But why is it always them being accused of something? If it's the Eagles being accused of deflating footballs, different story. We have something to investigate and look into. But why is it always the Patriots under the Bill Belichick regime? Well, I mean, you know, to be to be fair, is it a, is it a situation of, uh, you know, the it's the the better teams get the more focus, or people make more of a, a big deal about it because it is the Patriots? Because uh, I think I tweeted out a link earlier of a, of a situ of a during the Packers Patriots game earlier this season where the announcers were actually talking about how Aaron Rodgers told them that he has his uh, his uh, ball crew overinflate. The balls. They they kind of push the line and actually overinflate them at times. So, but I mean that was said in in plain as day English on the broadcast that said Aaron Rodgers told us that he overinflates his footballs and and nobody batted an eye. Um, so is this kind of a? Uh, and I think there was somebody on my Twitter page that kind of equated it to um, pine tar in baseball. Is it, is it kind of a gamesmanship thing? You know, you know, if Green Bay does it, as Aaron Rodgers, at least in, in terms of overinflating, um, has admitted to, and and let, you know, let's say that the Patriots are guilty here, um, doesn't this sound like it's more of a situation that, that that most likely there are a lot of teams doing it, and it and it's all a matter of coming down to enforcement. And again, to me, that would fall on the officials. I mean, why is it the Patriots? I don't know. How many other teams are doing it? I don't know. Did the Patriots really do it here? Again, I don't know, but if if something actually happened here, much like you know pine tar in baseball, much like um, you know if a if a player's stick uh, in hockey is is has too much of a curve on it, uh, and they they check it or n- choose not to check it um, in a shootout situation, uh, and and then the stick can get dismissed if there's too much curve. Isn't this just something that kind of you can almost chalk it up to gamesmanship? And uh, it's whether or not the officials catch it and or rule on it. Now, is there dirty money changing hands between the league and the officials? I don't know. I, you know, much like the last couple of weeks, it, it's not a good look. Or is it just something for the for the for people to talk about? Because you have a week off. Not, not a lot of people, even though we'll talk about it briefly, not a lot of people care about the Pro Bowl. So is it gamesmanship? Is it cheating? Is it dirty? How many teams do it? There's a lot of questions here. What's going to come of it? I, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, Troy Vincent, NFL Executive VP of Football Operations, um, said on uh, Pro Football Talk Live today, said that they hope to have the investigation wrapped up over the next two to three days. But uh, honestly, what, what's, how much can go into this investigation after the fact? Um, because, you know, uh, b- you know, both teams have broken away. The, you know, those, those balls... Um, you know, you, you can't retest the balls now, uh, given that it's been, you know, a couple of days. So I'm not really sure what the investigation is going to do. Um, again, if they are found guilty, it, it's, it's a loss of a draft pick or a couple draft picks, I guess. Um, 
you know, it, there's there's so many layers to this, uh, you know. So I don't know why it continues to happen to the, um, you know, to the New England Patriots again. Could it just be a situation of that they are, you know, that they're the top, and that's usually, you know, the, you know, the fall from the top is usually the the, the biggest because. Most people, uh, you know, most people recognize the team at the top more than people at the bottom. If the, if the, if the Jaguars were doing this, is anybody even going to notice or care? Probably not. Um, you know, if this is a game in October, are people going to notice? And, and I do like that you said that it wouldn't have made a difference in this game. But, you know, just, there's, there is a lot of layers here. And, um, you know, so I guess the league is going to wrap up its investigation. But, you know, I I feel I, I chalk it up more. And again, I'm not a Patriots fan. I'm not a uh, you know I'm an NFC guy, so you know I'm very far removed uh, from this. But but I almost chalk it up to a gamesmanship thing. You know, even if it was slightly off, um, you know I I think that there's and I say this in a lot of situations. The NFL rule book is 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 you know, it's it's way too big, way too detailed, um, and and you know, is is it something that is that big of a deal if it's if it's you know kind of hardly noticeable? I you know I don't know, but uh, you know we'll see what the NFL decides. It's not going to have an effect on this game, but um, yeah, just so many layers to it, Anthony. There really is. It, yeah, it's weird. Um, it, you look at it, and the one thing he's talked about gamesmanship before. Because I feel like if it's games, guys say, oh, that's the oldest trick in the book. But you don't even hear old school guys really coming out and talking about this. So that's where I just draw the questions because it's very new. The deflating of footballs is very new and fresh to us. Now, as we all know, a deflated football is just easier to catch than a football with more air in it. Um, And especially in windy conditions as well as there were in New England, a heavier object is going to move a little bit less than an object with some more air in it. But Again, it is a weird situation. I don't know what the league's going to find, if anything. Can they? Um, I mean, there's supposed to be a marking on the ball. So, was I mean, was that ball not checked and the ref didn't check it when it came into the game? Yeah, there's a lot of variables. So, I think it's just now a matter of waiting and seeing what happens because, you know, you attack it from every single angle, um, but then there's always one truth to it. So, I mean, whether what the league comes out with is true or not, as we've heard many sides of the story from them before that we've still been able to question uh, is this one of them or do we get concrete evidence that we believe yeah and and I, I think the biggest question I want answered because I, I haven't been able to find a definitive yes or no or whatever or a definitive uh, answer is wh- who and where are the footballs guarded and how are they guarded during the course of the game, are they, you know, sitting on the Patriots bench and the Colts bench? Are they in a certain area with, you know, with these football attendants? And, and I think, um, again, I, I can't remember who exactly said it. I believe it was on the Steve Zabin show. I think the easy answer here would be, would be this, you know, don't have the home team supply their balls and the road team su- supply their balls have, the have you know have an NFL you know person for every game that you know they inflate the balls 
They're they're part of the officiator, you know, they're part of the officials at the game. Have them inflate the balls. Um, you know, have have people to supervise because I know um, you know, the, the the team is allowed to um I guess prepare or rough up the surface or whatever of, of the footballs. Uh they have a, a, a brief window that they can work with the footballs. Um so allow the teams to do that. And then you know, then the, then the balls go back, and have have actual and you know it, it it's all controlled and handled by the NFL themselves. It's not a home team and not a road team. I mean, it, it, may, it may sound kind of funny, it may sound kind of overkill, but wouldn't that um, wouldn't that kind of avoid situations like this? Yeah, to me that makes sense, and I know they give uh, they're very liberal in the way of letting players bring their own football in doctoring them to their liking in a legal fashion themselves, but so why don't you have the players bring the footballs to the game? Before each game, you allow the quarterbacks to sit down with whichever guy you put in charge of the NFL uh, official that you put in charge of the football, and not a referee official, but someone who handles the footballs, put them in charge, and they can go through before the game with the quarterbacks, is this good for you? And they inflate the footballs at a regulated level, and then they maintain them throughout the game. They have footballs designated for each quarterback that they keep an eye on. So if Tom Brady is in a game, you have a box of footballs designated for Tom Brady. If they bring in uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, you have footballs for Jimmy Garoppolo that he has to his liking, just like a player has a baseball bat. You know, I think you can allow football, uh, football players to each have their own footballs, but have them regulated. I think it makes all the sense in the world, and I don't think it is overkill. I, I really don't, because if this is going to become an issue, kill it before it does. And in, right now, it's in the baby stages. I think you could stop it, and I think it's an easy fix. I really do. So I think this is, would almost be a no-brainer for the NFL, depending on what they find in this investigation. If they find this deflation did happen, I think it makes all the sense in the world to have someone regulate the footballs uh, on a game-to-game basis. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, 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 does, it almost sounds you know, between, somewhere between overkill and way too simple. To just have you know to have it you know controlled by the league, but uh, you know if, if people are calling into question the uh, you, you know the credibility of the game and and this and that, if that's what it's coming to, then then just make you know make it simple, you know nip it. You know obviously it's not going to happen for the for the Super Bowl. Um, put it in the, put it into play for next year. Just get it get it done this off season and put it into play and, and make it real simple. And, 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 you know, in a way, I almost hope it does, because then, you know, if there's a if there's an issue like this, then it then it falls on the league. It doesn't fall on the team. And, and you know, that's that's, I think, something that I would like really quick, right. Anthony, because go ahead. Uh, I just want one point, too. And from the past year, the NFL has had with all the off field issues. It's just been a black eye to them. So I think this is just such a simple process that you tailor to the fans tailored to the rest of the league. It, it's simple, and it looks good. You know, we know what's fresh in our mind, and going in through this offseason, if we see that done, it shows that the NFL is trying to improve their brand in, I think, a reasonable manner. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, anything the NFL can do to improve its brand is probably a good thing at this point. One thing, in my opinion, that doesn't um, – 
doesn't necessarily hurt it, but it doesn't improve it either, is, uh, is the little scrimmage game they have going on this weekend, uh, the Pro Bowl this year being held in um, at University of Phoenix Stadium, which will be the host, the home of the Super Bowl, um, but uh, because it is in a warm climate. I guess now when it's not in a warm climate, they still hold it in Hawaii. When it's in a warm climate, they hold it at the site of the Super Bowl. Seems a little a little more confusing if you ask me, but um, yeah, I'm not going to get into the into the whole rosters and, and breakdown and all of that. Um, you know, I, when I when I talk about All Star games, I think you know pretty much all of them are uh, pretty much useless, uh, pointless, boring, stupid. But uh, what I usually enjoy about you know like the NHL, the skills competition, um, the NBA has you know three point contest, dunk contest, um, you know, MLB home run derby. They you know kind of have like some celebrity like softball game things. Um, you know, I always kind of enjoy those, uh, those events. I hate the actual games themselves. I've been to uh, a couple of years ago when the, uh, American hockey league, uh, all-star game was in Hershey. I went to both the skills competition and the all-star game. The, the skills competition was really fun. Uh, really fun to see live The the game itself was the most boring three hours I've ever spent in a hockey arena in my entire life. Um, you know, so I, I just don't like all-star games. I mean, I, I, I think the only reason I even tuned the channel to the, um, to the Pro Bowl last year was to see how ugly the, the uniforms looked because uh, I think they redid the uniforms because it was the new format. Um, I'm not even going to do that this year. I have no intentions of turning on the Pro Bowl at all. Anthony, do you watch the Pro Bowl? Do you enjoy it? Do you, know, do you boycott it like I do? I, it, I don't. I'll flick to it. Uh, last year, I watched because, I mean, you know, I, I want to watch because Cameron Wake is into the Miami Dolphins, uh, but as a defensive end, you're really limited in what you can do. So it's almost a moot point to watch for him. They have Brent Grimes in this year. Um, I like to watch for Brandon Fields, who was their partner he was in last year, because um, I'm a punching junkie, as weird as it is. Uh, but they don't even do much of that in the Pro Bowl. So I don't have much incentive to watch. Um, but you know what? I honestly think I'll spend more time watching the players get drafted tomorrow night than I will watching the entire game. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of turned – I don't want to say I'm turned off by it, but it's pretty mundane to me because it's the same thing. I know the draft is a cool way to spice it up and this and that, but what I really miss is the skills competition they had, the NFL had. Uh, you talked about the – the AHL had theirs that you went to. I got to see the AAA Home Run Derby a few years back when it was at Coca-Cola Stadium um, hosted by the Iron Pigs, and I saw that All-Star game. I think it's neat to see the prospects in that sense, but, I mean, an All-Star game is not – you know, if you have the base uh, MLB All-Star game in Philadelphia, maybe I'll go. I mean, just because I like baseball that much, but I'm not – it's not something that I am chomping at the bit to go – out there and see, like, for the NFL Pro Bowl. Uh, it is it is what it is at this point. I mean, you kind of touched on it. You're turned off by I, I agree. Um, and it's not a knock on the NFL. You don't want anybody getting hurt. Uh, you, you can't really afford that. It's for fun. Um, but I, I don't know how you spice it up a little bit. It, it, it's bland um, because it's limited in what you can do when you're not getting a full football game. 
Yeah, it's. I think you know. I think I would enjoy much like you know the skills competitions, things like that. If they had, if they on you know the day before would have some sort of. Uh, you know, I don't know. How, you know, I don't know how you'd have to do it, but uh, some sort of you know quarterback and and running back and you know all different positions have different. Um, so they used like to comp- competition. They used to have the passing competition, um, and guys mm-hmm. would. The guys who do the bench press, uh, certain players. So they had all kinds of cool competitions, and you can still watch them on ESPN Classic. And if they come on, I'll, I'll put it on. Um, I know they had uh, like Hall of Famers play uh, or retired guys play. It was like Team Marino versus Team Montana, and it was like a five-on-five football game, flag football game, where Dan Marino was a quarterback, Joe Montana was a quarterback, and they had you know uh, a running back, three or, or a guy snapping the football, and some wide up. Like that stuff is cool. And he incorporates some uh, current NFL players. That's fun to watch because like, it, it's lighthearted. You get to see a different side of the players, and I think people like that. Um, but they took that away. So and I, I think there's some put, there was some push on the players' part, and the NFL just dropped it altogether. But I would like to see that come back. I think that's more fan-friendly than the Pro Bowl is. Oh, Absolutely. Um, one last, one last thing, uh, NFL wise, we're not going to, you know, get into any type of point spread, any type of, uh, you know, breakdown, anything like that. That'll be what, uh, what's on tap for next week. But, um, just that first glance, Anthony, who, you know, who do you think walks out of Arizona, uh, with the, with the Lombardi trophy this year? Ooh, I'm going to go with Seattle. Um, you know, it's, both of these teams are evenly matched. Uh, the only spot, uh, as offense as a whole, you give it to New England because Tom Brady's at X Factor. But defense as a whole, I give it to Seattle. I, I give it to Seattle. I know Darrell Reeves and Brandon Browner have played well, but I think Seattle has just been a little bit better. And an X Factor in this game for me can be special teams. The punting we can see from Ryan Allen and John Ryan on Seattle side, and the kicking. Who's who, who can make a big kick? Can Steven Guskowski make a big kick? Can Steven Hauschka make a big kick? That is my X factor right there. Who comes through when it is time and clutch? Say Seattle gets, or New England, whoever gets stopped on the 40, can you get a punt inside the 10-yard line and see if you can have LeGarrette Blunt or Marshawn Lynch charge down the field? Or can Tom Brady and uh, Russell Wilson make the big throws they need to to get out of a sticky situation? I think special teams is the X factor, and I will give the lean there to Seattle. I've seen enough from them that I think they can get the job done. Special teams, I think it's going to be a fun game. Um, a lot of people, at the, obviously, you know, Seattle's drawn a lot of interest. New England has that big bandwagon crowd. It's going to be a fun game, but I'm going to lean Seattle. I think all three sides of the football, they're just a little bit better than New England. And uh, I know you said not point spread, but there's a little bit of misrepresentation of the line. Patriots getting early action. I think that'll come back to earth and we'll be close to a pick instead of a minus two as it is right now uh, for the game. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 at first glance, I, I, I think it's, it's New England's game to lose. Um, I, uh, overall, I agree with you that uh, in terms of um, – Overall offense, you have to give the edge New England. Overall defense, I would give the edge of Seattle. 
But but the thing that that I think makes one of the bigger differences is I, I think that New England's defense can do enough to kind of disrupt Marshawn Lynch a little bit. But I think that you know the, the, Seattle doesn't have the best core of, of wide receivers, and I think that could be the difference. Is is I, I don't think you're going to be able to beat um, I don't think you're going to be able to beat New England in a in a one dimension fashion. So that's why um, you know right now I just have to give the slight edge to them. But um, obviously, like I said, I'll break down this more next week uh, on the show. Um, Anthony, uh, not, not a lot of college football news gets made once the season's over, um, before you get into like draft time and, uh, signing day and, and then spring football. But, uh, th- there was a little bit of news, especially in the state of Pennsylvania that I think, um, you know, can, can incite a reaction one way or the other from people. And, um, you know, I, I do kind of hope we get some calls on this. So if you have thoughts on it, seven, two, four, 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 seven, four, four, four. Uh, you have to enter the call ID one three six one one seven, and we will get you in. Uh, obviously, the, the Penn State situation, the, the Jerry Sandusky situation, um, in, in all of the um, aftermath of that, of course, uh, the NCAA, you know, really brought the hammer down on Penn State and uh, had taken away Joe Paterno's wins. Um, 111 wins away from Joe Paterno from the time period of 1998 through 2011, um, which took him out of the uh, which took him out of the all-time lead as a head coach. Uh, obviously, the Penn State community was very upset because you know they, they looked at him as, as their you know as their you know leader on and off the field, and and he didn't do anything wrong and. And there was there was so much reaction in the state of Pennsylvania to to what happened. Of course, Joe Paterno passed away um, in January of 2012. Um, th- this was a, a settlement between um, Penn State and the NCAA. Um, it uh, the 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 agreement between the NCAA and and, and Penn State says this: um, Penn State agrees to commit. A total of $60 million to activities and programs for the prevention of child sexual abuse and the treatment of victims of child sexual abuse. Penn State acknowledges the NCAA's legitimate and good faith interest and concern regarding the Jerry Sandusky matter. Uh, Penn State and the NCAA will enter into a new athletics integrity agreement that, with concurrence of the Big Ten, includes the best practices with which the university is committed to comply and that provides for the university to continue to retain the services of Senator George Michael and his firm to support the university's activities under the Athletics Integrity Agreement and areas of compliance, ethics, and integrity. And like I said, um, reinstates the 112 wins, 111 of which uh, to Joe Paterno. So he is once again at uh, 409 wins uh, on his career. Now, before we get into some of the backlash from it, when, when I first heard the that announcement, when I first heard that the settlement was coming out, you know, I, I really did have mixed feelings uh, about this because, you know, I think I do believe that that at his age, and I've talked about it before, both on Twitter and on on my shows, 
that I, I do believe that, um, you know, Joe Paterno at his age did in his mind what he thought was, was right. Um, he had later admitted that, you know, he, he could have done more to follow up. But, you know, I, I, th- this was a failure on multiple levels at Penn State. This wasn't a Joe Paterno failure. This, this was a, you know, this is a, a sick person who did sick things, and it, it, w- it was dropped and failed on multiple levels with Penn State and with law enforcement for, for a number of years. Now, when you look at this situation, the NCAA, whether they overstep their bounds or not, they put down a punishment. They put the, the program on probation, which so many people say, well, why are you punishing innocent players? This is the way it always works. Is it right? No. But that's the way it works. You know, how else are you going to lay punishment on a university, on a, on a program that clearly has its issues? You, you, you punish the program. Yes, are there innocent players that are being affected? But you know what? The program is what failed. You know, it, it's happened at Notre Dame. It's happened at USC. It's happened across the board. So they punished the program. They have since rescinded that punishment. The sanctions were lifted. They took away Joe Paterno's win. Again, was it overstepping their bounds? Possibly. But now they have since taken that back. Now, granted, Penn State has to pay $60 million, and, and I think that's great. But I, what I do not like here is when you, when you do something, you punish, and then you take it back. Because, you know, to me, that just says that you, you basically have done nothing to punish this program, which I think is the wrong message to send. Because there was a systemic failure. There was a program failure. There was, you know, a, a serious problem with the structure of Penn State. And the the almost cult-like worship of Joe Paterno and that program is as evident now in the reactions and the way that the Penn State community, which being in Pennsylvania, I'm not a Penn State fan, ha- has handled this news because they they for years all i've heard is and, and and anthony don't don't worry i will get to your thoughts on this a little i'm getting a little long-winded but for years i've heard from penn state fans that the wins don't matter we know what happened in those games all we care about you know we care about what happened to these you know to these innocent kids and what you know you know that that that's the most important thing and the minute that this news the minute that this news broke Twitter exploded with people celebrating like Penn State won a national championship. And to me, that is the complete wrong message to send. That is the complete wrong way to react to this sort of situation. Because whether Joe Paterno has his wins back or not, nobody won in this situation. Paterno's legacy was tarnished. Um, Penn State's reputation has has a has a huge dent in it and you have a a countless number of individuals who were 
affected for their entire lives by a monster. So pardon me if I if I don't buy into this celebrating 111 wins going back in a record book. Yeah, um, I we had a good discussion on Twitter after it happened. I, I mean, we agree for the most part of this, and I think you, you hit pretty much every nail on the head. It's sad more than anything because, as you said, there are no winners in this situation. You 100% right? Yes. Because the fact people want to say they're celebrating, that is despicable because they are celebrating for all the wrong reasons. Remember what put us in this situation. Remember what it was. Something truly horrific had to happen for us to get all the way to here. And should the NCAA have done something with Penn State? Yes. Should they have taken away the wins? Maybe not. But I I think the NCAA rushed the judgment a little bit too quickly Um, because they had Penn State in a vulnerable, vulnerable position where they could have waited. They could have extended it, and they had them by the tail for as long as they essentially wanted to. And they and they coughed they coughed up the ball. That's what happened. Um, but what this shows me is that they settled giving wins back. It shows me the integrity that the NCAA has and that Penn State has that they will settle for something this simple. This is all over a lawsuit. This isn't over kids. This isn't over the kids. Um, this isn't over the tragedy that happened there. It's happened for all the wrong reasons. And I can't stress that enough. Every single reason that is wrong about this is why it happened. It shows that the NCAA is money hungry because they were scared. They were scared that they were going to get uh, exposed and their power was going to be taken from them. Because Penn State, people in Pennsylvania had a pretty darn good case about it. Simple as that. The NCAA knew they were at fault. And guess what? pretty cheap way for them to say, hey, the wins that you guys already had but we just took away from the record books, have them back. Drop a lawsuit. That's it. Done deal. But for people to say this is odd, they think the senator that, you know, um, uh, uh, that helped that helped with this lawsuit, he said something about that there's, that they're all winners. There's big winners here today. No, there is not a single winner in the world in this case. And on the Joe Paterno point, whether he knew about it, whether he didn't know, listen, I think he knew. Because there's a man a man like him who built that program from absolutely nothing into the powerhouse it was and was, I'd say, the most important man in the state of Pennsylvania because of how big of an institution Penn State is, that he had so much control over it. You think King does not know what's going on around his empire? That's what Joe Paterno essentially was at Penn State. He knew something was going on. I think he could have done more, but guess what? He thought short-term over long-term. I think he believed what he wanted to, not what the reality was. It's sad. It really is. And every point you made, I will second. I will back up with the weird cult following it gets. I understand people get like that. I don't have a favorite college team. I don't follow. They go to Kutztown. Not a big college by any stretch of the imagination. But 
it puts me in a perspective where I can look at each thing neutrally and objectively. But the way people get over this, they want to party, celebrate, I mean, please, get a grip on yourself. This is not a celebratory matter whatsoever. Go find something else to do and do it in a constructive way. You want to celebrate? Go raise money for the kids. Go raise money for future kids and help the cause, not just with the $60 million that Penn State's going to have distributed throughout all this. Make a change. Not just be... I mean, it's almost like... I don't want to say it's like the rioting that's going on, but it does nothing. It's for all the wrong reasons. And again, I can't stress that enough. What you said was perfect. Um, and I think both of us get riled up by this issue and get a little long-winded. I think because it strikes a chord. It strikes a chord with both of us, as it should. And I think it strikes a chord with a lot of people. Because we can look at this from the outside and see what's really going on. And for those that can't, I feel sorry for you. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, these Penn State bands, they, they go back to, you know, how the free report wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't factually correct and the sanctions were too hard. Well, Penn State, that was an independent investigation that Penn State paid for. I mean, Penn State, you know, if you really want to look at it, and I understand they're kind of in a vulnerable situation. They were crisis managing, but they shot themselves in the foot. How, you know, how can you... How can you uh, discredit the free report when it's your university that paid for the damn thing, for starters? And then you can, how can you discredit the sanctions and say they're not fair when you agreed to them? And I understand that you were in this mode where you, you, you know, the, the argument would be, well, we didn't want to, we didn't want a negative light, you know, we didn't want to be viewed in a negative light if we, if we kind of argued against the sanctions. Guess what? You were in one of the worst situations, the worst scandals, whatever you want to call it, in, in major college football history, I'm, I'm pretty sure that arguing against the degree of sanction wasn't going to make you look that much worse because pretty much the, you know, and, and as evident by the reaction outside of Penn State country to this news, um, you know, people, people still, people don't view you in very good light to, to this. So, um, you know, it, it's not a good situation. Another thing that, that didn't look good coming out of this, the Penn State hockey team on Friday night wore 409 decals on their helmets in their game. And immediately I went, I was like, no, this can't be real. You, you can't actually look at me and say, I, I could not believe that they, that they would do that because – Again, what kind of message are you sending here? You know, you don't have you don't have a you know, remember that blue ribbon that the Penn State football team wore for the for the rest of that season? That that was great. That's not there. The the Penn State hockey team is not wearing a blue ribbon on their on their helmets. I'm I'm not saying they have to, but if you're not wearing a blue ribbon that raises awareness about uh, you know, about you know, the sexual abuse of children and, and and the tragedy in that. But you, in the same day that these sanctions will be, re- that, that or, or the, these wins are being restored, you're going to put 409 decals on your helmet? Um, that's not a good look. Penn State's athletic director, um, Sandy Barber, um, called the tribute inappropriate and insensitive 
when uh, when a person on Twitter inquired to her about it, asking you know how she felt about it, and again, much much like we've been talking about this this gut reaction from Penn State fans, they attacked her for that for that tweet. Penn State fans attacked her over that tweet, um, and then she had to kind of clarify it. But Anthony, how stunning is it that Penn State Penn State's hockey team would wear 409 decals and then the Penn State fan, I mean, would attack their athletic director for giving what I think is the correct opinion on this whole matter? Yeah, again, I think it goes comes back to putting it in perspective and looking at it objectively and from the outside, which you and I both have. But these people inside the Penn State organization, I've been up to Happy Valley, and it's like they're in their own little world out there. I mean, there's nothing around it outside of that town. And, and people who come who come back from Happy Valley bring this little world with them. You said it's like a cult following, and it is. It, and I don't want to mean it in a derogatory manner, but it gets a little weird at some point for me, a little too weird for me, where it's excessive. You know, did he win 409 games? Is that something to celebrate in a sense? Yes. But the reason you're wearing 409 stickers at that point is not the right one. It's just not. People, again, are forgetting what brought us to this situation. It, it, it is. Uh, you know, if you want to I, mix it, if, if there's a, for trial, if there's a, a logo for child abuse or a symbol for that, if you want to mix that into a logo of 409 or something, but just the 409, it seems pretty distasteful to me in that it's stubborn and greedy. It seems greedy more than anything. You know, do you feel bad for the paternal family? Sure, a little bit, but did they bring it upon themselves? I don't know. Uh, There's a lot of variables in this situation as well. Um, but, yeah, I think it's distasteful, and I agree with what the athletic director said. She kind of said, it's not the time right now. You know, I don't, and he said she clarified in which you needed to in that sense because, of course, you're going to ruffle some feathers in the Penn State community. Of course you are because that's what's going to happen with a situation that gets just as dicey as this one. But people need to put it in perspective, take a step back, and look what this really means. In, in the grand scheme, what does it really mean? And people are missing the point on it, missing the boat completely. Yeah, um, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole statue thing. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to get too overwinded on this. Uh, and and you know, I guess uh, the the there's a, a new statue going to be made in downtown State College, um, which you know, again, I have no problem with with people taking pride in in the number of wins that that Joe Paterno had, being the the winningest coach, and you know I take pride in, in being a Notre Dame fan, and you know being being you know the the I believe it's the highest winning percentage in college football, and the, and the coaches that have you know brought Notre Dame to that level, you know Rockney and Holtz and and Leahy and Parsegian, and you know I've gone to Notre Dame Stadium and I you know I stepped on the grass and joked that it's kind of holy ground, and it it is a neat place. And, and, you know, if you've never been to South Bend, you know, you're not a Notre Dame fan, 
you know, I've had people who aren't Notre Dame fans that have gone there for games, and they, they tell me, they're like, you know, wow, I can only imagine what it's like being a Notre Dame fan and walking around that campus when it actually, you know, means something to you. But, again, it, it, it's sport. It, it's, you know, you know there, there, there's flaws there. I mean, you, you've seen Notre Dame go through their fair share of tragedy. And, um, you, know, while I, you know, while I believe that the, the tragedies that, that happened at Notre Dame in the last couple of years were – were were accident situations, you know, had it been found out that, you know, Brian Kelly or a member of the coaching staff was liable for, um, you know, that, that student that passed away in the scissor lift accident, you know, I felt there, you know, that they should have been punished, but because I, I can see beyond that world. And then, yeah, like you said, it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's isolated up there. You know, it, it's, you're, you're driving into a mountain there's a there's a university there's a town and then you're you're back in just a mountain I mean it's it's it, it's definitely in its own little world and, and people I, I think get a, get a little um you know I you know island view or whatever the hell you want to call it but you know that it, it, it's it's a sad situation the whole way around and I think people forget that yeah like you said I I, I agree with you 100 percent I think people forget why this whole thing um you know came to be and, and the whole thing is tragic. There's no winners. Um, you know, you got your 409 wins. You got your 111 wins back. Good for you. But but let, you know, let, let's keep it in check. And that's kind of the whole uh, the whole thing I, I've been trying to argue uh, since the beginning. But uh, you know, let, let's let's move on here. Got a little bit of hockey stuff. I, I'm not going to talk really anything about the um, uh, about the NHL all-star game this weekend. I am looking forward to watching the, 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 the skills competition on, on Saturday. They, they kind of do a similar thing with the draft like, uh, like the NFL does now, where instead of a conference versus a conference, um, they just, they have captains and they, they pick the teams. but uh, I'm looking forward to the, to the skills competition. It's always neat uh, with the NHL, but probably one of the coolest, um, hockey pieces that, uh, you know that that I've that I've seen in the past couple of weeks, and if you want to get any calls in, you know uh, this is probably kind of the last call for phone calls. We only have a couple more stories to bring up. Seven two four 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 seven four four four. The call ID one three six one one seven, and then you got to hit the pound sign, and that'll get you get you into the queue. But um, about six to six to seven weeks ago now, Gordy Howe, NHL legend, Detroit Red Wings legend. Uh, suffered uh, um, what was reported to be a pretty massive stroke. Uh, was in he was uh, I guess the family was basically preparing for the worst. The news sounded extremely grim, but he had uh, gone to Mexico. The, his family he lives in Texas. Uh, he's been in Texas since um, since he had moved to Houston to to, to play and uh, with the Houston Arrows. Um, they they live in Texas. He had gone to Mexico and actually received a stem cell stem cell treatment because uh, obviously they are not uh, um, uh, done here in the U.S. at the, at this time. Um, and since then, he has made what can only be perceived as a miraculous recovery from this stroke. I mean, people, um, you know, people in their you know 40s and 50s, if they have uh, this level of stroke, never recover. Um, you know, and he is at 86 years old. Um, he has now gained 20 pounds. Uh, he walks up to a half mile. Uh, he converse, he, you know, he jokes around 
Uh, and now, according to his son, um, uh, Murray, that, you know, he's kicking soccer ball around. He's playing driveway hockey with his grandsons. He's faking out and deking out his, uh, his, great, his great-grandson shooting the puck through the five-hole. So really looking at him, you, you can't even tell that the man um, had a stroke. You know, this is this is in early December. I mean, we're we're talking just a little bit over a month ago. Um, he received an injection into the spine. Was the procedure that was done, and he said there was a transformation within eight hours of that treatment. Um, you know, so really no, you know, and and really no sort of uh, m- miraculous uh, recovery for him. And it's such awesome news, and it kind of brings up the question. Um, you know, not to get too political or too out of the sports world, but you know why? Why isn't this allowed here? Why? Why aren't we doing this here? The fact that you can you can look at this this situation as kind of this handbook of, you know, this is something that that should be in in the American medical field because you have an 86 year old man that was basically knocking on death's door and is. Now, as spry as he's been in years, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't know why it's not uh, legal up here. Um, it's a good question. I know other guys that have gone to Europe and done it, uh, some guys in the mixed martial arts and kickboxing community that had a, a neck issue, Boss Rutten did. Um, he, he went over to Europe and got it done. It was Germany or Holland where he's, originally from, but he got it done in his neck and said he felt like a million bucks. I mean, back back to normal, uh, doing martial arts activities um, just to stay active. I mean, like at the age, he's around, in his 40s, 50s, that age. But he, I mean, back, kicking, punching, doing things at a normal speed again that a, a retired fighter does. Um, I mean, from everything I have heard, it works. And it's pretty damn effective. So why is it not legal in America? Heck, I don't know. I feel like sport uh, organizations would want it because guess what? As much peat as they're getting for performance-enhancing drugs, if you have this legalized across the country, that potentially eliminates HGH uh, use for quote-unquote injury purposes. Then there's no need to use HGH if you have something like stem cells that can repair an injury in in effect, a t- uh, timetable, you know? And then, they say, a guy gets caught with HGH, well, now what are you using it for? Then we can raise some questions, and that will take away the excuse of, well, I was trying to rehab from an injury and come back. Right there. So, I mean, in, in a sports sense, to try to transition the politics of sports, I think it makes all the sense in the world, you know? Because um, everything I have heard, it has sounded pretty darn good in this Gordie Howe story, Uh and a stroke is, I, I've only heard it for injuries. I have not heard about it for a stroke. And the fact that it works for something like that, that's amazing. That is amazing stuff what science can do. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, and this is really only the tip of the iceberg. And, and yeah, I hope it is it's something that, you know, not, not only in the United States, uh, you know, sports, but just in, in general, um, you know, I've, I've heard that, it, you know, it can, it can not necessarily cure uh, Parkinson's disease that can have you know dramatic uh, improvement on uh, on on their conditions and 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 so much more. It, it's something that I think definitely needs to uh, be looked at. Anthony, before we jump into any other topics, um, 
uh, just about three minutes ago, Chris Mortensen at Mort Report, uh, for, uh, of course, from ESPN, uh, tweeted out, the NFL has found that 11 of the Patriots footballs in, uh, used in Sunday's AFC title game were underinflated by two pounds each. That is per league sources. He says NFL has no comment at this time. And Patriots will, said they will continue to cooperate with the investigation. So um, obviously very, very early in, uh, in these reports. But, um, you know, so, so it, it appears that uh, to at least uh, agree, you know, uh, there appears to be, um, you know, some sort of deflate gate. Now, how, how this happened, um, you know, where it happened, when it happened, how it happened, you know, a lot of that stuff needs to be played out, but it, it looks like there's going to have to be at some point some sort of uh, uh, punishment coming down on the Patriots. I know a lot of people are saying that, uh, you know, I've already seen a couple tweets here. It says the Patriots should have to forfeit. Um, uh, the Colts should uh, get into the Super Bowl. Um, you know, I, that, none of those things is going to happen here. It's just going to be a loss of draft picks. But uh, it appears that the, that the Patriots were using illegal uh, illegally uh, inflated footballs uh, th- this past Sunday. Yeah, listen, I dislike the Patriots as much as, uh, as a fan, as much as anybody else, because I'm a Dolphins fan here. But you know what? Uh, deflating the footballs by that much, it, I mean, it has a big impact on the game of 45-7. to The main issue is not the passing game for New England here, or for the Colts here, was doing this passing game. It was the fact that they could not stop a Garrett Blunt. And deflating the footballs was not the issue there. Does it make it a little bit easier to hold on to? Maybe it does. But guess what? You still could not tackle a Garrett Blunt. That's a plain and simple fact. Should the Colts get in the Super Bowl? No. Should the Patriots to forfeit? No. But guess what? You use them as an example. And this the, I'm curious to see what the NFL is going to do here. We talk about draft picks being taken. How many? That's the question I want to know. Are they fine? That's another question I want to know. Um, and I think now this we talked about it, this gives a call for uh, a little bit more regulation in the NFL uh, with the footballs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you know, we'll keep tabs of that. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet about it, um, get anything um, detailed stories out on the Facebook page. Again, go like that, facebook.com slash Sports. Um Anthony, the uh, the American Hockey League. I don't know how much of a of a minor league hockey guy you are. I know you're kind of a Flyers fan, um, but there has this is a league that I mean, when I was growing up, there was only about uh, you know twelve, thirteen teams really based out of um, from about our area up into New England. Uh, at, at when I was growing up, actually Hershey was in the South Division to give a little bit of perspective of. Uh, how the league was structured at the time. They are now in the East Division. There's teams, uh, you know, Chicago, Milwaukee, um, Texas, Iowa. There's been more of a westward expansion there. A few times have been teams very far west. Manitoba um, was in at one time, and actually Abbotsford, um, uh, Abbotsford, uh, British Columbia, which is actually west of Vancouver. But... uh, you know, those teams have since folded. The league has stayed somewhat at Great Lakes uh, into the the Northeast and, and as far south as Virginia. But there, there's a there's a push because being the, the, the minor league 
affiliate, the major minor league affiliate, the AAA of hockey, if you will, uh, to the NHL, there, there's an issue with teams like Anaheim, L.A., Colorado, your West Coast NHL teams having trouble with, with call-ups and, and uh, recalls because they're so far away. Um, I know Hershey suffered it a little bit back in the, in the late 90s because they were affiliated with the Colorado Avalanche. And when you had these issues where, you know, if you have a guy who is ill or just a little bit banged up, they would call up a guy from Hershey. He'd be gone for a week, two weeks at a time because of the airfare costs and the travel costs to get them out there. They didn't just want to call a guy up for a night. Now Hershey's hooked up with Washington, and there's times where a guy will get, you know, will practice with Hershey in the morning. He'll have to drive to Washington for the for the game at night, and then um, is he drives home uh, after the game because he's already sent back down. So you have a little bit more play there when you when your teams are geographically close. But uh, the, the there's been a lot of reports that the AHL is looking into expanding west and having a Pacific division. As early as next year, um, the Denver Cutthroats and Arizona Sundogs of the Central Hockey League uh, suspended operations this year. There's uh, plans that uh, both the Colorado Avalanche and Arizona Coyotes have purchased AHL franchises, uh, most likely those two franchises that uh, went defunct. Um, the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, or the Anaheim Ducks, I still call them the Mighty Ducks, it's a reaction, um, uh, their affiliate is in Norfolk, Virginia. They are in in works with the league to try and uh, purchase the the franchise from Norfolk. So uh, the potential of up to five, maybe six teams moving out west next year, and it, it really has an interesting um, interesting take on the AHL because they currently the NHL season eighty two games, the AHL season uh, a couple years ago was eighty games. They dropped it to seventy six. But there's actually talk of them dropping it to somewhere around between 60 and 66 games uh, if they move west. But I know there's times that there's teams in the AHL that have never been to Hershey just because of travel distance. So adding a Pacific division adds a whole new, uh, different perspective. And maybe you'll get one West Coast trip, and the you know these teams might make one East Coast trip. Um, but I think it's really interesting to see the way that uh, that the the expansion of this league and uh, for, for the, for minor league hockey to be, you know, to be in the, in this spot, because uh, you know, we've seen, you know, we baseball, there's, there's so much minor league baseball everywhere. Um, college football is basically, you know, minor league football. So to see that the triple a of hockey expand like this and actually get solid base, maybe in the West coast, um, because there's a lot of great hockey in the AHL, and if you've never been to a game, um, you know that now there's a team in in, in Allentown. You know it 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 it's it's cheaper, uh, and the hockey's still really good. But but I'm really intrigued by to see what happens with the AHL here. I you know and this year I just got into the AHL with the Phantoms coming to the Lehigh Valley, being in Allentown. Uh, my dad was able to get tickets, season tickets for him, so I've been to a handful of games already. I was just that one on Saturday. Um, I love it. So I'm all for the Westward expansion. Uh, knowing I, I worked in minor league baseball with the Iron Pigs previously, uh, did some internship stuff with them, but I know they were great in attendance, but right behind them was Sacramento, the the Oakland Athletics AAA affiliate. Uh, 
in attendance. So I think there's some, you know, room out there in the California area if the Ducks want to get involved, if the Kings want to get involved, you want to get some California teams involved to grab some minor league hockey. Um, it, well, there's talk about Vegas getting a minor league hockey team, isn't there? Or they even want to possibly get an NHL team. But I think there's yeah, I believe, yeah. There's opportunity out west, um, and minor league baseball numbers have backed it. So, I mean, maybe Sacramento's an area. And you talk about the uh, talent level, it's right there. You know, it is fun to watch those games. You can see, obviously, see a little bit of a speed discrepancy that the NHL things are just done a little bit more efficiently, faster, crisper. But, I mean, comparing, I compare AHL hockey to AAA baseball, AHL hockey is on a much different level than AAA baseball, uh, for sure. And it's action-packed. You know, if, even if you're not, per se, a hockey fan and don't understand so much of the game, uh, it's exciting. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of movement. that There's something that you can follow. So I think, you know, if they can move out west, by all means, do it and expand the brand. And I think it could only help the NHL in the long term, uh, getting more hockey out in the area. And from what we've seen so far, it's been doing well in the Lehigh Valley. Hershey's had a good staple there with the Bears for years. Um, so I'm excited for it. But I'm happy that I've gotten more so into AHL hockey this year. And it's helped me keep up with the NHL and just a little bit different of a level that I can follow minor leaguers now. Um, and when guys would be called up, I'd be a little bit unfamiliar with them. But now, you know, I'm right there with them and say, hey, I just saw the Flyers called two guys up on uh, yesterday. Yesterday, two guys up. I watched them play Saturday night. I said, all right, cool. I know who they are. So when I'm watching the Flyers game on TV, like tonight I was, I said, hey, I know who those guys are. I know what they've done the past few weeks and uh, what they bring to the table. So I think it's cool. I like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up. I mean, everything I know about hockey is because of Hershey. I mean, a little over a half hour away. I mean, I, I grew up going to Bears games. It was cheaper. We couldn't afford to go to NHL games. And, um, you know, I've always, I've always said that, uh, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to find out if it's my, if it's minor league or if it's real hockey, you know, go sit next to a season ticket holder and at a bears game and tell them it's just minor league and see, uh, see what kind of reaction you get. But yeah, it's, you know, it, it's exciting. And, and yeah, it, it's great that you can make the connection, you know, when you follow, uh, if you could follow the, your minor league team to your NHL team. And that's why I think this expansion could be important because, like you said, you know, you, you start going to these games when they get called up to the parent club, you know who they are, you, you know, a little bit of their background. You know, in my lifetime, the, the Bears have been affiliated with the Flyers, uh, the, the Avalanche, uh, they had partial affiliations with Tampa Bay and Florida, but now they're with the Capitals. I've always been a Capitals fan, so it's hard for me, you know, to cheer for a guy in the Flyers or the Avalanche organization um, at Hershey, and then when uh, the the Capitals affiliate comes to town. You know, I want Hershey to win, but I want I don't want like the Capitals guys to get hurt and, and things like that. So when you know they they've hooked up with with the uh, the Caps for this is the tenth season, um, it's it's perfect. You know, it's it's perfect for me because you know now the guys I'm cheering for at Hershey games are the guys that um, you know are, are the guys that I'm cheering for in, in, uh, in Washington as well. So I think this expansion is, is very, very important. And, and you know, the, the, the more hockey there is out West, the better, because 
especially when you have a cheaper alternative. I mean, I know people are going to go to NHL games because it's the, it's the major league, but I think people can get attached to the minor league system because it, 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 you, you have more of means to get to more games. And, you know, I, I had friends, like, I went to Kutztown as well, and I had friends there that, that saw how passionate I was about hockey and about the Bears. They said, I want to go to a game with you. So numerous times we would take the, you know, the 45-minute drive or an hour drive from, from Kutztown to Hershey, and they'd go to one game with me and be like, wow, this is really exciting. And they still go to games today, whether it's Reading Royals, and whether it's, uh, you know, the, the newly high Valley team, wherever, you know, and my, my wife was the same way. She didn't even, she had never been to a hockey game, watched a hockey game when I met her. And, you know, we, we've gone to many of, many of bears games. She, she likes the caps. So, you know, there's something to be said for these minor leagues. And I think that it's, uh, that it's a pretty cool thing that, that, that the league could be expanding West. Um, Anthony, the last, uh, last thing I have tonight is a little bit of MLB. Max Scherzer's seven year, $210 million deal, um, with the, uh, with the Washington nationals that, um, you know, easily, I, I would say gives them on paper the, you know, the best rotation in baseball, um, sets them up at least again on paper, pretty favorably, uh, for this upcoming season. You know how how do you view this? Um, you know, I, again, I, for me, baseball. Uh, last year, I kind of got into it a little bit more than I had been. Looking forward to it again this year. But uh, you know, second largest guarantee ever for a pitcher, uh, five million dollars behind the Clayton Kershaw deal signed a year ago. Um, you know, what does this mean for the Nationals? And and you know, what is this the piece? that they were missing or, you know, because it seems like the rotation last year was, was pretty strong, but it was the rest of that team that, uh, that, that kind of failed them. It wasn't, uh, you know, it it wasn't exactly the pitching that, that faulted them, was it? No, it wasn't the pitching. Uh, Jordan Zimmerman pitched extremely, extremely well last year. So the Nationals got that out of them. And now they back it up by bringing in Max Scherzer. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's funny, the state of baseball right now. Max Scherzer, roughly $30 million a year. He's pitched one complete game in his MLB career. As good of a pitcher as he is, one complete game for Max Scherzer. And that warrants everything else he's done, too. $30 million a year. I find it amazing. Um, on paper, the Nationals have the best rotation. I think you can say yes, but I'll make a debate. I don't even know if they have the best rotation in their division. That Mets team is young, doesn't have quite the resume Washington does uh, in, in their rotation, but I like it. I like that Mets team, and I think that Mets team, we're going to have a fun three-way battle this year in the NL East. I think this could be the move, and I've called the Nationals pretenders the past two times they've been in the playoffs because they've had an inflated record by playing – four lackluster teams, 18 times a year, equaling 72 times they played a lackluster team for a guarantee. So they had 96 wins last year. You know what? They put the NL East. I was not impressed. I predicted the Giants and four against them in the NLDS last year hit that one on the nose. But I'm curious to see how the Nationals fare in a much tougher division this time around. The Mets are not a joke this year. 
the Marlins are not a joke this year. The Phillies and the Braves, guess what? They're going to be the bottom feeders. They're, they're in the rebuilding process. But watch out. You have a young team in Miami, a young team uh, with the New York Mets, and some talent there as well to go around, some veteran talent. Uh, so maybe this is the move. Maybe this is the move, Max Scherzer, that could put the Nationals over the edge. I'm going to have to see, though. You know, on paper, I want to say yes, but how have the Nationals, just looking at how the Nationals have fared against the prime competition of years uh, of the past years, they haven't fared so well in, the, in when it's mattered. Look at the postseason. It has not gone well for the Nationals. So, and I, I will value the Mets and the Marlins right now on paper. I value them as prime competition. So if they can go toe-to-toe with the Mets and Marlins this year and beat them in a head-to-head record setting, both of them, I'll consider it and see, obviously, what Max Scherzer does. I'll consider the Nationals a legitimate contender. I also did hear Steven Strasburg is on the trade block. Uh, so I'm not sure where that's going to lead them. Um, they can afford to lose someone like him, and they definitely can afford to bring another bat into that uh, lineup. You don't know what you're going to get out of Jason Worth as he gets up there in age. Bryce Harper's good for 270. He hit some bombs. He's going to strike out a lot. Um, you know, you rate him as a B-minus, B player right now in baseball. Uh, some people want to look at, his, look at him as an A-plus, but he's just not that. He's a little overrated in my opinion. Um, there's Anthony Rendon's a good player. You have good talent there in Washington. But it's a matter of putting it all together. I think you need to trade a guy like Strasburg to do that. Scherzer definitely helps but I don't think he's the one that puts Washington over the hump, um, especially as their division gets tougher. The Giants are not going to be a bad team. The Do- Listen, the Dodgers are still here to play. They have a good rotation in their own right with Kershaw, Granke, Ryu. They're not a bad team. Um, St. Louis is going to be a good baseball team. We'll see what Pittsburgh can bring to the table this year. Milwaukee is going to come back with a vengeance, although they just got rid of Giovanni Gallardo. There's going to be a lot of talent in the National League. So, I guess, in short, coming back to it, is Scherzer the one that puts him over the edge? I don't think so at this point. I I just don't think he's that piece. I think they need a perennial bat in their lineup, not a perennial arm. But then again, you can never have too much pitching. Injuries are coming a dime a dozen these days in baseball. Uh, So, a guy like Scherzer could give you that depth that you do need, that when it gets later into the season, August, September, down the stretch, I think he can give you good innings. Um, but this is a steep price. It's a steep price that could bite him in the butt later on for a guy that is not proven to be the workhorse that you desire. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't. I don't. You know, th- this is a good deal for for Washington, obviously. But you know, I, I I don't think that this is the deal that puts them over the top. You know, I, I think that I think that they need. I think they need to, 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 to bolster the lineup as well, to, like you said, to compete with the rising uh, NL East. But, uh, you know, plenty, plenty will have to play out, you know, it's about a month till uh, pitchers and catchers report. It's hard to believe, uh, you know, they're talking about, you know, snow tomorrow and possibly snow this weekend. And, um, you know, that, that we're, we're going to talk, excuse me, talking baseball and, and uh, baseball being right around the corner. Um. You know, so so you know, pl- plenty of that to, uh, to to look ahead and look forward to, uh, Anthony. That's all I have for tonight. Uh, we're gonna let you uh, let you head out here. Just let everybody know um, 
uh, let them know where they can find you on Twitter. Also, let them know about your uh, about your show on on uh, Kutztown Radio. Uh, hit me up on the Twitter at a r marchetto. That's at a r m a r c h e t t o. From Tuesdays from three to four, I host a radio show, Kutztown University. Um, you can find them on Twitter at ku radio. Then from there, you can get a link to the show. This and that, uh, Jim. I want to say thank you to you as well. You just helping me become better radio host in my own right. The show I have at Kutztown uh, has been selected as a finalist for the Intercollegiate Broadcasting System's uh, Best Sports Talk Show. So that's a national competition through colleges that have radio stations all throughout the country. And my show that I run on campus has been fortunate to be selected as a finalist. I think it's me and maybe 10 others. So there, there were well over 100 submissions. And um, we needed into the finalist field in March. Of the, there's a, the award ceremonies in New York City, so I'll find out um, if I think bring home the big trophy at that point. But, again, thank you for the help you've given me at this point uh, in my radio career, and it definitely does not go unnoticed. Yeah, again, uh, you know, best wishes to you in that. Uh, I know I know. I joked with you when uh, when the announcement was first made that make sure you remember me when you hit the big time and hit the uh, hit the national scene and you probably need a partner so do not forget about me when you when you get to that level but it, but uh in all seriousness bet you know it, it's an awesome thing uh for you you know I've enjoyed listening to your show that's why you know I kind of brought you into the team here um and uh you know I've really enjoyed having you and uh and I look forward to uh continue to work with you throughout this spring and in the future thank you very much sting and brock lesnar 2016 get your votes in now they're becoming uh president and VP. Thanks, Jim. Uh, all right, man. Have a good week. So again, thanks to Anthony. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, I know Mitch was out there listening and, and tweeted in a few things to me uh, d- during the show. So again, I thank you all for that. Again, check us out NGSCSports.com. We never stop with two, two radio, uh, radio players, channel one and channel two. We're on channel two here. I'm on here Tuesday nights, 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I also have a pro wrestling show, uh, Three Count Thursday, that's coming to you Thursday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, So many great shows on the network, so make sure you check them out uh, on the website. Uh, You can also look us up on Spreaker by searching NGSB, iHeartRadio, searching NGSB, or on uh, various iTunes. Um, Again, I'm on Twitter at Big Jim Sports, Facebook.com slash Big Jim Sports, folks. Have a great week. Uh, you know, it is winter. Uh, you know, there's going to be some winter weather around, depending where you are. Stay safe. Stay smart. Um, you know, enjoy the weekend if you want to watch Pro Bowl, NHL, All-Star Games, things like that. Um, enjoy it. Have a great week. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Everybody's gonna move their feet Get down, everybody's gonna leave their feet
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.